This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi everyone, I am Theta with an 8. On today's edition of the Not Quite Daily Show, we are discussing the 10th episode of Land of the Lustrous. It would seem we are well and truly at the beginning of a final arc, with an accompanying escalation in threat. A lot of the story ingredients we mentioned last time as possible directions have been mixed together for the result so far. Uh, there is indeed a surprise from the Lunarians. They do strike while Congo is out of the picture. We have a resurrection of the unresolved conflict between Daya and Bort. Fos does get pulled into the middle of it partially as a result of Bort wanting to correct her recklessness. And Bort does make a priority out of protecting her fellow gems, leading to the limited scope of the encounter by the end of the episode. We again have a situation where there are more unresolved than resolved movements, which limits the scope of our discussion today. It is shaping up a bit like the ordeal with Ventricosis, which is the only other outside threat which has spanned multiple episodes. Before moving on, I want to call particular attention to the later parts of the episode in which Daya is pursued by the Lunarian. For whatever reason, our showrunners especially like to leverage the 3D CGI camera movements whenever Daya is the one on stage. There was a fight scene I criticized back in episode 3, but that same installment saw the point-of-view shot of Cinnabar coming upon a sleeping Daya, and the tracking shot that races with her back to the school. This time, the camera moves closely with Daya as she tries to hide from the Lunarian, crawling behind barriers, scooting over the desk, and our frame is filled with Daya instead of giving us a good look at the entire room. This is a favorite technique of horror or thriller movies, as we are not only moving and hiding along with the character and taking in all of their panicked reactions, but we also only get fleeting and partial glimpses of the threat which stalks them. This incomplete information heightens the fear of the unknown, and being constrained to the character in danger makes us connect more closely to their emotional state. We are basically crawling and ducking along with Daya, stealing only occasional glances at the threat which hunts us. Putting the audience into that anxious, hopeless state thus makes Daya's decision to fight back seem all the more courageous. Shots of this nature are quite difficult to animate consistently when done by hand, so I thus wanted to point out and applaud this technique that is usually reserved for cinema because it's quite effective at aiding the tone of that final encounter. It's not the only thing, of course, but the real trick to that scene is all the virtual camera work, and I want to take a moment to praise it after I was less charitable earlier in the series. With that said, let's get on to the main body of our video. As mentioned, we have a resurrection of the conflict between Daya and Bort, which was the mini-arc of Episode 2. At that time, I created a goal for Daya, that she wants to feel like a real diamond. The emphasis on this desire at the time made it seem like a goal that could influence the story direction, but we had seemed to also leave it well behind us. Daya's advice to Fos about changing herself was the only influence on the narrative, at least until now. 
Daya decides to stop hiding from the Lunarian and attack it herself, in part because of the inadequacy that is implicit in this stated goal. She can't be a real diamond like she considers Bort if she shies away from danger or relies on someone else all the time. We'll explore Daya a little more thoroughly in characterization, but I thought I should mention that I don't think this is a goal Daya can accomplish entirely on her own. Daya succeeding in a solo fight is probably not enough by itself. The way she thinks Bort perceives her is a big factor in why she feels inadequate in the first place. Daya acting diamond-like is thus part of the equation, but having those efforts recognized and validated by Bort is probably a necessary step right now. In conflicts, although it is technically a part of the larger Lunarian conflict and represents a further escalation, I feel this current Lunarian incursion should just be its own new conflict. I don't think resolving this new danger would end the larger one, and potentially it makes no difference to Lunarians as a whole. Unfortunately, we just don't have much information about the new threat, which puts us squarely in the same boat as the gems, uh, but we do know some things. This Lunarian is capable of blocking swords, and not just capable, but quite good at it, enough to cause Bort, of all people, to feel the need to retreat. Until now, the Lunarians have relied on offense and trickery, as getting close enough to strike has always gone in the gem's favor. Whatever the Lunarian's many claws are made of is enough to stop their blades short. The size and mobility of this Lunarian are notable threats as well. Actually getting off the cloud platform and still having speed to keep up with the gems is a new development, and just further enhances the melee capabilities. It's interesting to me that Bort was trying to get Fos to think of the entire Lunarian ensemble as one entity, and here we have an actual single entity wreaking havoc on their expectations. Lastly, the detail that turns Daya's victory into an ominous cliffhanger is that slicing this Lunarian in half is not the end of the fight. Instead, we now have two smaller but quite threatening entities to deal with. Is this a quality unique to this Lunarian, or is this a new escalation going forward? Just something else to mention in conflicts, since I brought it up last time. The potential for some kind of friction between Bort and Fos was implied by how episode 9 ended. This episode, however, has Bort basically cut that potential issue off before it becomes a problem. Rather than let Fos go about her undisciplined, reckless ways any further, Bort ditches Daya to team with Fos. That doesn't mean we are out of the woods necessarily. Uh, the cliffhanger may leave off with Bort guarding a broken Daya against the Lunarian, but Fos is still kicking around there somewhere. The conflict here seems less likely than our cliffhanger tried to imply, but it may not be completely out of the picture just yet. In characterization, I'll have things to say about Fos and Daya and Bort, of course, but I want to begin with a short look at another character. I've mentioned it before, but only a few of our gems have struck me as being introspective or emotionally complex. Fos and Cinnabar are the most obvious ones, and Rutil has had moments when you understand that her mind churns with deeper matters. But another character that struck me as the thoughtful sort is Euclace, and she has a moment to show it. She will hear Fos refer to herself as Bort's new teammate, and immediately goes to Jade and Rutil to find out if they gave the okay. When learning they did, she follows up by wondering what Daya had to say about it. That is, she thought immediately of the effect this might have on Daya because of paying attention to their dynamic. The unconcerned looks from Jade and Rutil suggest that they didn't consider this angle. Even as they are explaining their rationale, we will be treated to images of Fos and Bort going on patrol while Daya gazes after them. 
Dio will actually come onto the scene to answer Euclase's question herself, and it's only then that Jade and Rutile seem to realize what Euclase grasped immediately, that Dio would not take being replaced with Fos very well. It's only in seeing half of their previous strongest team arranging flowers and Stepford smiling that it all clicks home for them. They had considered only the pragmatic aspect of pairing Fos's new but unknown strength with Bort's experience. The emotional collateral damage hadn't crossed their minds until confronted with it directly. Euclase, though, thought about that aspect first. It's a small bit, but I thought it was a nice way to characterize her, especially in contrast to Jade, who she is partnered with. To move on to Fos, then, it shouldn't be a surprise that she also thought of Daya when Bort made the offer. She also understood that it would have to be her delivering the news, and the unpleasantness she anticipated would stay her hand a bit at first. I will say one thing that struck me about her exchange with Bort and how she tried to process it is the similarity to her behavior earlier in the series. We had noted last time that Fos seemed like a new being throughout the first half of the episode. Certainly, her new capabilities, combined with her sober mood, was a dramatic shock to the other gems. But we also noted that this grafted personality had started to fracture as the episode wore on, especially in the encounter with Cinnabar, and so we guessed that she may be shifting back toward her original persona. This scene where she proclaims that Bort doesn't scare her anymore, only to back up and decide that, okay, just kidding, <laughs> strikes me as classic Fos. Likewise, when she realizes the ordeal it will be to tell Daya, and will first try to pass the buck to the jellyfish voting, and then entertains forgetting the whole ordeal. That is the Fos we know and kind of love. Now, Alex had been saying almost immediately before this how Fos had really changed, that she used to just talk a big game, but she doesn't seem nearly so different from her earlier self once faced with the Bort partnership situation. What is different this time is that she's picked Antarcticite as something of a moral compass. Once she considers how Antarcticite would weigh in on Fos's reluctance, she understands that she needs to be brave and face her troubles all the same. I find this an interesting evolution from the Fos of Episode 9. She was serious and responsible at first by emulating Antarcticite, but with the noted suppression of her original personality. Now she strikes me as closer to her original self, but with the maturity she gained thanks to her winter experiences. I said last time that she was not back to who she was, just older and wiser, but the process of stealing herself to speak to Daya actually does suggest Fos is on such a path. She is obviously uncomfortable throughout the conversation with Daya, and nearly backs out of the whole affair after Daya's initial reaction. But despite this discomfort, she will listen to what Daya says, and even allows herself to be chastised after her frank assessment of Bort. We don't get to hear that conversation, though I'll come back to what I would guess in just a bit. Whatever it is, the Fos that greets Bort the next morning is not nearly so unsure. She's resolved to make the best of it, she listens to Bort's advice and then instructions, and neither flinches from the unexpected situation nor puts them in danger with overconfidence. However, we don't yet know if this trend will hold since we left off in the middle of the crisis. Fos is actually sidelined from the story in the last third as it switches focus to Daya. This is oddly reminiscent of Episode 3, in which Fos is absent and we instead follow Daya as she attempts to bring Fos back. 
I thought last time that having a whole episode revolve around Fosa's character changes meant that we were setting up to put her to the test, but if so, that is clearly still down the line. Instead, we pivot to Daya and her character struggles, and I'll get to her last. Before leaving Fos, though, I'd like to point out that we had a, a rather tidy bit of storytelling in the bell ringing scene. When Bort tosses Fos at the bell and tells her to ring it six times, it's obviously a signal to everyone else on the island. Six tolls of the bell mean something. Since they retreated from the battle, we know Bort has no confidence in them winning as they were, and so I assumed the same thing as Fos, that the bell was to summon everyone to take down the invader together. Her saying as much gives Bort a natural opportunity to fill us in on the truth, that this is the signal for everyone to hold in place. Now, one of them could have just said that as part of the exposition so the audience would understand, but by having Fos reach the wrong conclusion, it ends up being a chance to characterize her as well. She doesn't know what the bell codes are. This could be due to memory loss, sure, but I imagine it's just another byproduct of the carefree and idle existence Fos used to lead. It's another reminder in the middle of the crisis how inexperienced Fos is, and all the added tension that comes with that reality. So let's talk about Bort next. At the end of last episode, I laid out what we knew about her as a character in order to better speculate on what the cliffhanger might portend. While she had been hostile to Fos at several points, there were far more examples of her going all out in order to safeguard her fellow gems. I thus thought that whatever Bort did this episode would not be from a place of jealousy or competition, but from a place of wanting to protect the others. I thought if there was a conflict, it would be because of Bort judging Fos as reckless and therefore a danger. What we learn this time is that all of this is true, but also that her perception of her role is greater than her loyalty to her partner. If Fos's capabilities potentially make her and Fos a stronger team than her and Daya, then that is the correct course of action. I underestimated the lengths Bort would go to when it came to protecting the others, as she will intercede and try to correct Fos's fighting tendencies even before they become a problem, even if it means splitting up her existing partnership. A Fos under her guidance and in partnership with her is something she judges will give the best results, and all other considerations fall away. However, I feel a little hesitation on Bort's part is implied early in the episode. We've never seen Bort be shy about what she says or does, and yet it seems she hangs around waiting for the right moment to speak to Fos. Fos will seem to notice someone just out of view once she has finished speaking with Alex, and will look that way again after Jade leaves. Once Rutile has her momentary examination and also leaves, we will be able to see that Bort is lingering in just the place Fos seemed to notice someone earlier. Fos will feel compelled to say something to indicate she can be approached before Bort will reveal herself and proposition Fos with the partnership. Now, once she actually gets going in that scene, there is no hint of second thoughts, yet later we will see her glance backward as they head out on patrol. She will tell Fos it is nothing, but combined with Daya also looking at Bort walking away, it's a sure bet that leaving Daya behind is what prompted that bit of hesitation. She gives the impression of doing whatever necessary to create new, more efficient methods, as she says, but it doesn't seem like Daya has figured into her decision-making in the least. But these two examples of hesitating suggest she's not 100% certain of this course of action. Further, she will reveal that she's well aware of how Daya is taking things, as she'll admit that Daya despises her for this decision. 
Like I said in Goals, this episode resurrects the ongoing issues between the two diamonds. It may be that this factors somewhat into Bort's willingness to dissolve their partnership. Bort and Daya seem like they may be an example of the old adage, familiarity breeds contempt. Anyway, Team Bortfos has a rather problematic maiden voyage. Once it's clear their battle with the new Lunarian is going nowhere, Bort pulls them out to Fos's surprise. But this is consistent with what we guessed about Bort and undue risk. As she'll say, recklessness is for the inept. After all, she had chastised Daya for her weird technique back in episode 2 because her body can't handle it. She was angry over the risk Daya had taken. Fleeing from the losing battle is thus putting her money where her mouth is. Giving the order to keep other gems in place, though, means that she is also not willing to spread that risk to others. In other words, this is not self-preservation, but a strategy to reduce the overall chance of any harm to their society. This aspect of Bort is what I would guess Daya tried to impress upon Fos the previous evening. Since Fos has probably always been on the receiving end of Bort's scorn, you can imagine she has a one-sided impression, but Daya should well know Bort's tendencies. Unfortunately, the change-up in partnerships means Daya is not out on patrol, and so the plan to protect hits an immediate snag. Like Fos, Bort will largely be put offstage in the final third of the episode to focus on Daya, but she will be there to witness the very end of the battle. Just after Daya delivers what ordinarily would have been a decisive blow, Bort is there to catch her eye as she plummets towards the hard landing that will incapacitate her. Although it is translated as Bort calling out her name, she actually calls her Nichan. That's a moniker for a sibling or someone who is like a sibling to you. There's an intimacy to it that I wouldn't have guessed Bort capable of. But the extremity of the situation has stripped away the pretense, and Bort's impulse is to call her by this much more familiar title. Those earlier moments of hesitation, then, are part of this pattern. Bort feels close to Daya, but either does not want or does not know how to express it. Daya's own words sum up the situation for both of them. From afar, I see just how much you mean to me. Once split up, they can't take the partnership for granted, and they gain much-needed perspective. Bort is downright affectionate in the way she touches Daya's shattered face. You get a sense that what has gone wrong between them could begin to mend, at least if they weren't still in the middle of the crisis. Who knows if they'll both be around to try to patch things up. It's possible Daya's last exchange in this episode could be the last between them for a while, so let us finally look at her and this episode's character journey. Daya has two parts to this episode, dealing with the change in partnership and dealing with the invading Lunarian. She is understandably shocked when Fos breaks the news, leading to Fos backpedaling out of the situation. Yet Daya recovers and smiles while she asks Fos to watch over Bort. She'll go on to explain why it shouldn't be a surprise and how Daya herself encouraged Fos to change and so on but it reminds me of something I noted back in episode 2. Daya is a little bit disingenuous. We just noted that Bort was hiding her hesitation and affection towards Daya behind a serious pretense. Daya basically does the opposite. She hides her distress and hatred under a sugar-sweet disposition. Back when she fought the Lunarians alone with her weird technique, I noted how she smiled throughout the fight even though the ringing sound that Fos heard meant that she was starting to cleave. When she will toss Fos and has accepted her fate of losing the fight, she will also do so with a bit of a smile. 
This is something of a mask for Daya, and so we shouldn't be surprised to see the same behavior this episode. The previously mentioned encounter with Euclase, Jade, and Rutil likewise features a sweet, smiling Daya who has just spent her morning picking pretty flowers to put in a vase. She'll explain that, of course, Bort always makes the right choice. Of course, she is never ever wrong. But then adds that sometimes she almost hates it, and does so while turning her smiling pleasantness all the way up. It's a rather jarring contrast between her words and her expressions, but since Bort realized that Daya despises this decision, it's a sure bet that Bort knows this is a facade. A fair amount of resentment seems to lurk just below the surface for Daya. Considering how inadequate she already felt back in episode 2, I can't imagine being replaced does anything for her confidence. She doesn't question Bort's thought process at all. Instead, it just validates the belief that she isn't good enough. When she is not in front of Jade and Euclase and Rutil, in fact, we'll see that she isn't smiling a bit. Rather, she heaves a full-bodied sigh at being reduced to flower-picking rather than fighting Lunarians. Little does she know that the fight of her life is moments away, and it's that encounter that forms the second part of Daya's characterization this episode. She is understandably surprised to come face to face with our invader, and it takes her a while to even sort out that it's a Lunarian. Though Daya has an unassuming disposition, she is a fighter. So even though she will run and hide and try to avoid the Lunarian, when she finds herself in Obsidian's work area, she makes sure to take a blade with her. The situation is beyond her experience or comfort zone, but she is not a helpless damsel who goes to pieces, and securing a means to fight back as a first move is worth noting. Despite that, she will feel overwhelmed by the threat, and will begin to wish that someone would help her. Of course, the someone who usually does so is Bort, and so Daya is once again reminded of the sight of Bort walking away to patrol with someone else. Bort isn't coming to save her, Bort left her behind. Daya will drop her head in a dejected manner as she remembers that morning, but rather than give in to this despair, she will decide it just means she has to face it on her own. She abandons her hiding spot to attack the Lunarian head-on. Even though she will quickly have second thoughts about the wisdom of this move, she stays committed to fighting rather than fleeing, even as she slowly loses pieces of herself in the battle. The brittle nature of her structure that was a liability earlier in the series becomes something of an ace in the hole this time around. The breaks on her limbs result in long, sharp edges, giving her a means to slice the Lunarian in half even after losing her sword. How often do you have such a literal example of someone turning a weakness into a strength? Unfortunately, it also means that she has spent herself in the attack, and for whatever reason, such a strike isn't enough to end the fight. I mentioned already the exchange she has with Bort and the implied possibility for their relationship to mend, but the Lunarian remains, now split into two smaller beings who still seem quite threatening. Daya cannot really see or move, so can neither flee nor fight back. She's dead weight, but perhaps also a prize, and thus urges Bort to run away. Coming after their brief exchange about being reminded of what they mean to each other, Daya's request seems to be for Bort's well-being. Run away and leave me here in order to save yourself. And Bort, of course, is going to do no such thing. In worldbuilding, we learn a few little details, but mainly we have a massive, many-armed question mark to contend with, so let's begin there. 
As mentioned in Conflicts, there are several aspects of this new Lunarian that are escalations of threat all by themselves. The mobility, the defense, and of course the surprise of splitting rather than disappearing at the end. The odd way it enters the island is notable in its own right, and was a nice way to build up the whole encounter. A twin sunspot as observed by Fos, and then the inkblot-like pattern spinning to create a platform rather than having it enter like a parade float. Our invader seems to need to physically bend and stretch the space to get out, which raises a whole lot of questions about how exactly this transportation portal sunspot system even works. Like, what does it even mean to be outside wherever it came from? Why are the edges of the tear in the sky a thing that can be physically manipulated at all? Of course, the biggest question is why it looks so different from the ones we've seen in the past. Even the new types and their trickery still looked like variations on the same theme. There won't be a Buddhist lens section and theme today, but it bears mentioning here that our Lunarian's appearance may have some inspiration along those lines. The pantheon of Vedic mythology, which had a lot of influence on Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, contains beings which are humanoid, but many-armed and sometimes many-headed as well. The gold bands around the joints of arms and legs are also a common visual motif. So is the combination of some beast-like aspects with a mostly humanoid frame, as in the three versions we see of this Lunarian. Depending on the tradition, there is also the concept of avatars, which is something like a physical incarnation of a god on a material plane, but of which there are many varieties that have their own purpose and unique appearance. Some Hindu traditions, for example, consider Gautama Buddha to simply be one of the avatars of the god Vishnu, along with his half-lion and half-boar or half-fish versions. That god is also sometimes rendered with an eye in the center of his forehead, as long as we are talking about it. Another detail in this direction is the cloud platform that arrives along with our new Lunarian. It's ringed by a distinctive jagged edge which begins pinkish but will cycle through several hues. It reminds me of what is called a lotus throne or lotus platform, which is a stylized version of a lotus flower that divine figures in Buddhism and Hinduism are often seated upon in paintings or sculptures. They look just like flat discs with a uniform jagged edge to represent petals, and sometimes there will be a second inverted throne underneath. And though I've spoken about the symbolism of a golden lotus a few times now, actual lotus flowers are pink, just as this platform is at first. All that said, I have no idea what this implies in our current situation. If answers are coming, they aren't here yet, but these at least are all world-building details we can note right now. The conversation between Alex and Fos has a few more nuggets of information along the same lines. Fos will talk about a mid-sized of level 5 sheen when describing the Lunarian she fought, suggesting a robust classification system. And the smaller Lunarians apparently are called disparates. I've no idea what word is being translated for that term, but disparate means things that are wholly unlike one another, which is kind of the complete opposite of those smaller Lunarians. Anyway, Fos also kept track of how many layers of veil and how many holes were present in the vessel and so on, so there is apparently a wide array of things they have been tracking as evidence to buy the peak we get inside Alex's room later on. Another thing that's part of that same opening sequence is that Fos continues to sleep very little. Jade will inquire after this, and Fos will say that she just dozes off a bit here and there. 
It's not clear whether this is an extension of Fos not wanting to face the nightmares of losing Antarcticite, like we discussed last time, or if there is something about the way she is reconstituted that requires less sleep. After all, being able to stay awake during winter was already notable, and that happened before she had this reluctance to dream. I don't know if it's related or not, but the sequence where the end of the bench wavers and lengthens and then resolves into Antarcticite sitting down reminds me a bit of a hallucination. Combining that bit with Fos not sleeping makes me wonder if she is seeing things or will sleep into some kind of fevered state at times. If so, it makes the interaction with the jellyfish a little more interesting. She'll ask them to vote on what she should do, and two will leap up out of their bowls, presumably denoting a yes vote. Well, that either means jellyfish understand their speech, which is not out of the question if it's Fos, or it is Fos's own imagination. If it's the latter, then it's being a 50-50 split thus suggests that she really was of two minds about what to do. Lastly, there is the bell system we already mentioned. Six rings means stay in place, so I'm guessing there are several other messages depending on the ring count. For example, there are seven tolls of the bell at the beginning of episode six when Yellow Diamond is fleeing the Lunarians. I'm sure if it was plot relevant, we would have found out before now, but I like the added complexity of this and the information that Alex has been compiling. It suggests a little more sophistication to the gem society. Theme today is relatively sparse owing to the degree to which this episode was action heavy. Um, there are just two I want to mention at all, as I am trusting that the thematic goals of this new arc will become more clear over the next two episodes. The first is the one I previously suggested might come into play, which is pairs and opposition. It's more of a thematic pattern than a full-blown theme, but I've always collected everything like that into this one category. Daya and Bort were already the poster children for this pattern back in episodes two and three, and so it should be no surprise that we'd revisit it when they return to center stage. In characterization, I already covered the way each of them is hiding a bit of what they are feeling underneath. The interesting part is how the scenarios are opposites of one another. Daya feels resentment, abandonment, inadequate, all negative emotions, but she covers over it with smiles and assurances. Even back in episode two, when Daya was admitting how she felt as a result of their situation, she still peppered her words with smiles and pleasant tones in contrast to what she was actually saying. Compare that to Bort, who felt hesitation about this changeup and perhaps even some guilt towards leaving Daya behind and is affectionate at the very end. There is loyalty and intimacy in what Bort is really feeling towards Daya, but she covers it with stern confidence or outright ignoring any discrepancy between her actions and feelings. I also found it interesting that the two deal with the Lunarian threat in opposite ways. Bort realizes she is overmatched and so falls back with the goal of having someone stronger take over, thus the plan to lure it to the school and wake up Kongo. Meanwhile, Daya will first consider hoping for someone stronger to save her, but instead will decide to take the matter into her own hands. Each of these may seem like the opposite of what you'd expect from their personalities. Bort, the assertive one, should be the aggressor, no? And uncertain Daya should defer to hoping to be defended by another, right? Instead, their opposite reactions originate from different ideas about what the fight means to them. Bort has nothing to prove and seems to really care about the safety of her fellow gems. Maximizing their chance of success and minimizing potential danger is her only goal in this or any other fight. 
But that same thought process has led to Daya feeling useless in the past, which prompted her to try to find a way to bring value to the fight. Hence her attempts to try out a new technique she wasn't really suited for back in episode 2, and hence her decision to charge into a situation she well knew was outside her experience. Daya does have something to prove, and Bort's protective instinct mixed with her derision is at least partially responsible for it. Daya quoting what she believes Bort is thinking at the end, you're reckless, bears this out. But depending on how this resolves, forcing their opposing perspectives into this crisis may help in a way that preserving their partnership never could have. That would be a very interesting way to take this thematic argument, but we'll have to wait and see. The other theme I want to touch on is metamorphosis. Specifically, the scene where Alex notes how Fos has changed, and then speculates that substituting different material for their missing pieces may allow them to reconstruct their personas. Alex can plainly see the outward transformation of Fos, and concludes it may explain the inward transformation. It's an understandable assumption, and it's possible there is some truth to it. Losing old memories and filling up the space with new memories might conceivably catalyze a shifting characterization, but we in the audience also have a different perspective than Alex. This is something I talked about in the past. Point of view is incredibly important to how we experience this story. Were we not in Fosa's point of view, she would seem like a constant problem child, bratty and impudent and just an annoying side character we wish would just stay off stage. But because we ride along with her and see the ups and downs, her earnest efforts and heartbreaks, and her desire to improve for the sake of others, but we have a much different perspective on Fos as a character. That also means we understand that Fos's inward metamorphosis began before any part of her was replaced, and so it can't be the simple cause and effect that Alex imagines. However, a lot of the incidents which have so shaped Fos did originate from some kind of change in her physicality. Being eaten and reconstituted gave her understanding of Ventricosa's speech, which led to all of the events involving the Admirabilis, including the new legs. Those new legs led her to being involved in the encounter where Amethyst was nearly lost, and seems to be the reason she could stay awake during winter. Which of course led to the new arms and the experience of losing Antarcticite. We have the point of view to understand that Fos's physical differences can't be used to explain everything that has happened to change her character, but at the same time, Alex's comments highlight that these changes are inextricably linked to that same character progression. In What to Watch For, we were looking this time for how the implied conflict with Bort would develop, and whether the positive reaction Fos received from Amethyst would change anything. Bort's situation resolved without a conflict, but matched what seemed possible based on her character. Even if Fos was going to change her behavior based on praise, Bort does not give her the opportunity, at least not yet. I pointed out that the last time Congo was in a long meditation, we got the multi-episode situation with Ventricosis, and so we are watching to see if something like that might happen again. Safe to say that it has, and safe to say we know what is kicking off a final arc for this season. All I am still watching for on that front is how Fosa's change in character will impact the events. For future things to watch for, obviously the way the cliffhanger resolves. I've already pointed out that depending on the outcome, there might be a shift in the Bort-Dia dynamic, so we'll pay attention to that. There's also the matter of what exactly Fos is up to during the last part of the episode. The original plan was to wake up Kongo too, 
so we want to see how or if that manages to come back into play. Congo being part of the solution potentially undermines the tension of whatever climax we are building toward, but Congo being too tired to wake is also something Fos may feel responsible for, as we noted last time. I'm watching for an explanation of what exactly is going on with this new Lunarian. Uh, we may not get it, but it seriously curbs my speculation, so let's just go ahead and move on to that. In speculation, as I said, I don't feel I have any useful information in order to predict the outcome of our current crisis. This new Lunarian defies the patterns we've understood to this point, and none of our characters make any useful conclusions to help out. Which is all fine, of course, and it's a nice way to keep accelerating the threat of the Lunarians after the high point of losing Antarcticite. All I will speculate on this point is that we aren't likely to have an entire episode composed of fighting this thing, so there is probably another aspect to this arc that hasn't shown up yet, or will simply jump off from the upcoming outcome. I will predict again that Alexandrite will have something to do with things. I had already said that bringing her Lunarian fascination up here and there suggested that that quirk would probably come back into the story. Well then, this episode greatly increases her presence, and she is the only other person besides the Fos Bort Dia trio that is caught up in the affair directly. I don't know what, but I'm sure she'll have something to add, and hopefully it is helpful. There's also a brief moment where Rutil will examine Fos's hands after claiming it is for personal research. We get no conclusions from her, and it altered nothing in the narrative, but the timing of it makes me speculate it will be one of two things. Either Rutil will figure out something that changes the ultimate outcome of these last two episodes, or the opportunity to study Fos's hands will soon disappear. Otherwise, there seems little point in making space for this encounter in the adaptation. Daya is currently in pieces, so maybe it will have something to do with that? Lastly, I still expect some conditions to arise that put Fos's character to the test. With the current arrangement, I'd guess something about how she reacts to the outcome of the cliffhanger, but since I don't have a good guess on that front, it's not useful to speculate what such a reaction would be. Putting her through the loss of another gem seems to suggest itself, both to give her another opportunity to face such a crisis, and as a way to keep from having a climax with less consequence than the winter episodes. But of course, this series has consistently acknowledged ways the story could develop at the same moment that they take it in another direction, so a very close call doesn't seem out of place either. However it develops, I would expect some kind of setup that emphasizes how far Fos has changed since those opening moments of lounging in the grass. Her journey has always been the centerpiece, after all. So that's it then. I really look forward to seeing where episode 11 leaves off, and I will likely have a lot more to speculate about the finale when we get there. If you are watching this as it airs, 11 might take a moment to release, because I am going to hold it until I know when the episode 12 live reaction stream is going to take place. More than a week for sure, but I aim to reach our last video and complete the series as soon as I can. So I will see you then. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred, and a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com.
Until next time, thanks for everything.